0: Okay, well, uh, we'll get started. We obviously missed a trick by not charging for attendance <laughs> tonight. We, we could have done quite well. So it's, uh, it's wonderful to see so many people here, and you're here for a very good reason, uh, which is to hear Amir Srinivasan's paper. Um, she will be known to many of you through her work in epistemology and in moral philosophy. But uh, she has a quality, I think, which makes her... I would say unique among philosophers in this country which is her writings on issues of important moral concern and her ability to write with humor with accuracy and a very short notice on <laughs> topics that the rest of us need about three years to think about And so Emir is one of the very few public philosophers who doesn't embarrass themselves (laughs) when they try to intervene on the public stage. I think we're all very grateful for that, but we're also (laughs) extremely grateful for her philosophical work, which we're going to hear now.
1: Thank you. Um, Thanks so much, Joe, for that lovely introduction and for the invitation. Thanks to all of you for being here. Um, With apologies to the people standing in the back, there are some tables up here, so if you wanted, maybe you could come perch on them. I can move my coat. Um, Okay, no, no no one brave enough. Okay. Yeah, lead the way. Good. So each of us finds himself already in the world, but not just in the world, in a particular world. A particular moment in history, a particular culture, a particular family, a particular language, and a particular body. And what is more, our representations of the world, our beliefs and values and concepts, are radically shaped by these particularities, these contingent facts about where we find ourselves in the space of possibility. So what are we to make of this? Am I justified in having the beliefs, values, and concepts that I have, if I have them only because of these contingent quirks of my particular history? And what reason do I have for thinking that my beliefs are true, or that my values are genuinely valuable, or that my concepts really grasp the contours of reality? If I could so easily have held contrary beliefs, had contrary values or cut up the world in terms of rival concepts. So naturally, of course, my beliefs seem true to me, just as my values seem valuable and my concepts seem apt. These are, after all, my values and my beliefs and my concepts. But would not my beliefs also seem true to me and my values also seem valuable and my concepts also seem apt if a different historical or cultural formation had endowed me with different concepts, values, and beliefs. And so what am I supposed to do with this other me, this shadow me, who believes the opposite of everything I believe, who cuts up the worlds in concepts alien to my own, and who values what I disvalue. What if she is the right one, and I turn out to be the shadow. So this series of questions gives voice to what I've called elsewhere, genealogical anxiety which is to say the anxiety that the causal origins of our beliefs, values and concepts, our representations, once revealed will somehow undermine or destabilize or somehow cast doubt on the legitimacy or standing of our representations. I say somehow because it's not immediately clear just why genealogical revelations might have such a destabilizing or undermining effect. Likewise, it's not immediately clear what we might mean by legitimacy or standing here. But what does seem clear to me is that we humans, at least in some places and in some times, are prone to genealogical anxiety. So consider, for example, this fragment from the pre-Socratic philosopher Xenophanes. He wrote, "'Mortals suppose that the gods are born as they themselves are, and that they wear man's clothing and have human voice and body. But if cattle or lions had hands so as to paint with their hands and produce works of art as men do, they, that is cattle and horses, would paint their gods and give them bodies in form like their own. Horses like horses, cattle like cattle. So according to Xenophanes, the Greeks believe that the gods exhibit human features only because they, the Greeks, are themselves human. So this is why non-human creatures, if they were only capable of depicting the gods, would depict them after their own image, cattle like cattle, horses like horses. At the origin of Greek theology lies not divine revelation or human reason, but an all-too base cause, namely the narcissistic desire to make gods in the image of man. I take it that the form of Xenophanes' argument is familiar to us. We know immediately its intended implication that because they have their origin in human narcissism, the Greeks, Greeks' beliefs about their gods are somehow deficient. And I think we know not only the form of the argument, we also recognize some of its intuitive force. So it really does feel to us that the genealogical revelation uh, that Xenophanes gives us should bear negatively on Greek theology and maybe by extension our own. On reflection, though, we can see that Xenophanes' genealogy of Greek theology does not entail that Greek theology is false. That's because it's perfectly consistent with the Greeks' beliefs about the gods coming from human narcissism with those beliefs also being perfectly true. That is, it could very well be that the gods do resemble human form. To think otherwise is to commit what philosophers called, called the genetic fallacy which is to falsely suppose that there's some sort of general entailment from the origins of our representations uh, to its truth value. So even even while recognizing this, even while recognizing that there's no entailment from Xenophanes' genealogy to um, the falsity of the Greeks' theological beliefs, we nonetheless feel that Xenophanes' genealogy somehow undermines the standing of Greek theology. For even if the Greeks believe beliefs about the gods are true, they they we want to say are they're, they're just true by accident and this somehow must cast out on them. OK, so of course, not all genealogies uh, provoke anxiety. Indeed, some of them appear to have just the opposite effect affirming or legitimizing what they explain. Um, As many of you know, Bernard Williams famously called these kinds of genealogies, vindicatory genealogies, contrasting them with shameful genealogies or what I'm going to call critical genealogies of which Xenophany's genealogy is going to be my paradigm. So famous examples of vindicatory genealogies include Locke and Hobbes' accounts of the emergence of the state, accounts that aren't supposed to only uh, uh, explain, but moreover justify Uh, Their authors favored political arrangements. And so like critical genealogies, vindicatory genealogies are, I think, often compelling but mysterious. So we might instinctively feel that a good pedigree somehow um, justifies or vindicates or otherwise reflects well on an idea or value or concept. But why should it? Indeed, why should a genealogy have any sort of normative significance at all? Indeed, perhaps our tendency to think it does is simply a product of an unjustified irrational fetish for origins, a fetish from which philosophy should be seeking to liberate us rather than indulging. So this was certainly the dominant view of an earlier generation of analytic philosophers uh, for whom inquiry needed to be cleansed of the genetic fallacy. The term genetic fallacy was coined in 1934 by Ernest Nagel and Morris Cohen in their introduction to logic and scientific method. In his 1938 experience and prediction, Hans Reichenbach drew the very important distinction between the context of discovery and the context of justification, right? He insisted that we keep these separate. Where a theory comes from, he said, was irrelevant to the question of whether it stood in good epistemic standing. Uh, It's perhaps interesting to note that Reichenbach seems to have been motivated to draw this distinction, the distinction between context of discovery and context of justification, Um, at least in part as a response to the Nazis' condemnation of certain theories as being of Jewish origin and therefore deficient, including, of course, Reichenbach's own theories. Uh, He was writing experience and prediction in Istanbul after being expelled from Berlin. Of course, if Reichenbach is correct, then nothing of a philosophical interest can be gleaned from this little story. I've told you it's just a bit of historical irrelevance. Indeed, Reichenbach's distinction serves as a kind of preemptory defense of analytic philosophy's general lack of concern with the context of its own emergence. Karl Popper, of course, went further still um, arguing that historicist inquiry was not only alethically irrelevant, that is, irrelevant to the truth, but also morally pernicious. There are um, some tables up here if anyone wants to take a seat. So, despite the discipline's historical hostility to genealogical thinking, analytic philosophers in the last 30 years or so have become increasingly enthralled to critical genealogies. Many contemporary ethicists, for example, claim that the naturalistic or evolutionary origins of our moral judgments demand that we abandon those judgments or on the pain of moral nihilism, accept some sort of anti-realism about their construals, anti-realism about their contents. So I'm thinking here of figures like Gilbert Harmon, Peter Singer, Alan Gibbard, Philip Kitcher, Richard Joyce, and perhaps most famously Sharon Street. Daniel Dennett has argued again via a naturalistic account of the origins of theism of religious belief against the rationality of theism echoing of course, early modern arguments put forward by Hobbes, Spinoza, Toland and Hume as well as later arguments from Feuerbach, Nietzsche, Marx and Freud. James Ledeman and Don Ross have argued that the evolutionary origins of our metaphysical intuitions and judgment and judgments uh, indict their capacity to get onto the mind independent structure of reality. Uh, That argument in turn is presaged by Nelson Goodman and Hilary Putnam's arguments uh, who both argued from the cultural contingency of our ontological schema to forms of anti-realism about ontology. And finally, uh, the fairly recent new subdiscipline of experimental philosophy is largely devoted to showing that people's philosophical intuitions vary with their uh, vary with culture, gender and socioeconomic status. And thus, experimental philosophers argue these intuitions should be cleansed from philosophical practice. So in other words, experimental philosophers seek to offer a critical genealogy of analytic philosophy itself. And so for better or for worse, analytic philosophy is no longer innocent of genealogical anxiety. So I think that this recent embrace or maybe acquiescence to genealogical anxiety, uh, no doubt has much to do with the newfound availability of critical genealogies from the cognitive and evolutionary sciences. So before this, critical genealogies tended to emerge from what uh, most analytic philosophers think of as more speculative modes of inquiry, right? From sociological and anthropological observation, from historical reconstruction, and especially in the 20th century, from Freudian, Marxist, and Foucauldian attempts to unmask the operations, respectively, of the unconscious, of material modes of production, and of discursive power. But to my mind, there isn't really anything new going on uh, in contemporary evolutionary debunking arguments that we don't already find in Xenophanes' attack on Greek theology. Indeed, I think it's worth noting that Xenophanes' genealogy is itself the product of a scientific revolution, the naturalistic revolution in cosmological thinking ushered in by the Milesian philosophers of 6th century Ionia. the contemporary ethicist who argues that our evolutionary origins of our moral beliefs cast doubt on our moral knowledge appears to me to be making much the same argument as Xenophanes at a structural level. So in both cases, there is a charge of what we might call a indifference, which is to say that our beliefs in human like gods or in morality are produced by a causal mechanism, narcissism, evolution, that we have no independent reason to believe will tend to produce true beliefs about the relevant domains, about uh, theology or about morality. And intuitively, this alethic indifference, even if it cannot show our beliefs to be false, bears negatively on the justificatory standing of our beliefs. And because justification is a requirement on knowledge, these genealogies threaten our claims to know the things we believe. And so do, by extension, all genealogies that, rele- that reveal our beliefs to originate in a lethically indifferent mechanisms. So most of my empirical beliefs, um, for example, the belief that I am currently in a lecture hall, presumably have genealogies that do not point to alethic indifference and therefore are not discrediting or undermining. My belief that I'm currently in a lecture hall presumably has its origins in my perfectly, well not perfectly, but my fairly reliable uh, visual perception, together with my fairly reliable capacity to apply the concept lecture hall. And indeed, the genealogy of my belief that I'm currently in a lecture hall might be thought of as a paradigm case of a vindicatory genealogy. But by contrast, my moral, religious, and metaphysical beliefs all seem to be caused by forces, cultural forces, historical forces, that I've no antecedent reason to believe uh, will help me track the mind independent, moral, religious, or metaphysical truths. So the immediately obvious question is this, just why do genealogies that reveal alethic indifference threaten epistemic justification? I take it that's the core question of the debate around genealogical or etiological debunking. And contemporary philosophers have offered a whole host of various answers to this question, arguing that beliefs with alethically indifferent genealogies fail to satisfy some or other condition on epistemic justification. Other philosophers, including myself, have been much more pessimistic, insisting that there is really no epistemically or dialectically plausible way to vindicate the critical genealogist's inference from alethic indifference, to ignorance. So I can't here offer anything like a full account of my pessimism, but I'm going to tell you what the heart of my pessimism is. I take it that the most promising way of vindicating the critical genealogist claim is to say that our moral, religious or metaphysical beliefs are based on what epistemologists call an unsafe mechanism. That is a mechanism that could very easily lead us to have false beliefs. It's a kind of unsafety is a a particular form of unreliability. So other unsafe belief forming mechanisms include things like believing on the basis of hallucinogenic drugs or believing on the basis of brainwashing or believing on the basis of visual uh, illusions. Such mechanisms, even if they happen to get me onto the truth by accident, could very easily uh, lead me into falsehood, which is precisely why they aren't conducive to knowledge. So to draw the analogy, even if, say, my particular cultural formation endows me with true moral beliefs, it seems that I could have very easily had had a different cultural formation and thus different and false moral beliefs. Having moral beliefs based on the contingencies of culture or on the contingencies of history is akin to believing on the basis of wishful thinking that Trump won't be reelected. So true, hopefully, but unsafely grounded. And since a belief must be safely grounded in order to constitute knowledge, my moral beliefs, just like my wishful hoping belief that Trump won't be be reelected fails Uh, to be knowledge. So that was my brief account of why I think the safety principle is the critical genealogist's best hope. The problem, however, is that the critical genealogist in invoking a safety condition on knowledge risks begging the question against his opponent. For in deciding whether a particular belief forming mechanism is safe, what evidence are we allowed to appeal to? So, suppose that the critical genealogist is attempting to impugn my personal feminist commitments as a mere product of leftist indoctrination. Let's leave aside the fact that most of my indoctrination has been decidedly anti feminist. So, he points out, the critical genealogist, that I have been educated, had I been educated in a different way, in different communities, I wouldn't have my feminist commitments. And that seems true. And so he says, does this not impugn the safety? Of the method on which i base my feminist beliefs that is the method of believing in accordance with what i am taught my response here surely will be that this is not the method on which i base my feminist beliefs i don't just believe what people tell me rather my feminist commitments are based on a careful reflection on the experience and histories of women including myself aided by the interpretive resources of the great feminist theorists. Patriarchal beliefs, meanwhile, are just based on what people are taught, right? That is, on a, and on a clearly inferior method, right? The method of just believing in accordance with a, a flawed but dominant ideology. In response, the critical genealogist will say to me that to insist on the distinctiveness and superiority of my belief forming method requires that I presuppose the truths of the very feminist commitments that are under the d- attack, that are in dispute. So what is at issue here between me and the critical genealogist is how to individuate belief forming methods for the purpose of assessing their safety. Right. The question is whether I'm using the same method in forming my feminist beliefs as the person who just believes in accordance with patriarchal ideology uses to form her beliefs. The problem for the current dialectic is that there is no principled, independent answer to be given to this question. Right. That is, there is no Principled answer that's independent of the very first order of feminist commitments that are in dispute between me and the genealogical and the genealogical skeptic. Any judgment about what does and does not count as a distinct and superior method will have to be informed in a circular fashion by whether we judge the relevant case, that is, the case of my feminist beliefs, to be a case of knowledge or not. Thus the critical genealogist who appeals to safety will risk begging the question against me and any of his opponents. For he will have to make assumptions about method individuation, which will in turn be informed by his judgment that the beliefs in question are not justified. But this of course is to presuppose precisely what is to be proven. Of course, in responding to the genealogical skeptic as I do, I'm begging the question against him. But I take it that's not a problem, given that he presumably has the burden of proof. (coughs) So what is more, the critical genealogist is faced with a threat, I want to suggest, of self-defeat, If he is right that our genealogical, genealogically contingent beliefs in moral, theological, or metaphysical propositions are unjustified, it would seem to follow that our genealogically contingent beliefs in epistemological propositions are unjustified. For our epistemological beliefs and judgments appear to depend on the contingencies of culture and history in much the same way as our moral, theological, or metaphysical beliefs do. Indeed, take the safety principle itself. <coughs> I mean, first of all, that's an extremely recent historical uh, invention. And what is more, one is way more likely to believe that the safety principle is a genuine condition on knowledge if one has recently had philosophical training in Oxford, <laughs> <laughs> as did I and many of you. Uh, the critical genealogist's argument thus seems to imply that we, not, we ought not believe one of its own premises, that is, the safety principle itself. Right now, note this is not to say that the critical genealogist argument is, uh, has, a, has a false conclusion, right? Instead, it's to say that the criti- critical genealogist can offer his opponent no reason to accept his conclusion. For if his argument is in fact sound and his conclusion true, it appears to follow that we have no reason to believe that it's sound and his conclusion true. So all this might uh, make it seem that we are back where we began with the diagnosis that we are compelled by critical genealogies as a result of some kind of historicist fetish for origins. But this, I think, is a serious mistake. So while revelations of the cultural, historical or evolutionary contingency of our beliefs is unlikely to show them to fall short of knowledge such revelations can nonetheless exercise a very important kind of power. Schopenhauer famously called skepticism, skepticism an impregnable fortress, but from which the garrison can never sally forth. So I take the lesson to this, of this to be, Insofar as we are untroubled by genealogical anxiety, we can simply leave the critical genealogist in his fortress. Right. He has no compelling argument. But for those already in the grip of genealogical anxiety, this is not a real option. Right. For such people, the skeptic is not in an impregnable fortress, but inside our own hearts, feeding our darkest suspicions that the beliefs we hold most dear are mere quirks of circumstance. Perhaps the genealogical skeptic can offer me no reason for thinking that my beliefs beliefs aren't knowledge. But what positive reason do I have for thinking that they are knowledge? Insofar as my beliefs are in fact knowledge, the genealogical skeptic reminds me that it must be because they are formed on the basis of a special method. That is a special knowledge conferring mechanism. A specialness that does not characterize the method that is used by my counterpart with a different historical or cultural or evolutionary formation. So put another way, if I'm committed to the claim that my genealogically contingent beliefs are justified, it seems that I'm ipso facto committed to the claim that I am the beneficiary of what we might call good genealogical luck. Thus, the critical genealogist exercises a kind of meta-epistemic power, right? A power to reveal just what we must believe about ourselves if we want to believe that our genealogically contingent beliefs are in fact knowledge. In order to maintain my belief in my knowledge, in order not to merely dismiss the genealogical skeptic, but to positively counter him, to contradict him, I must believe myself to be genealogically lucky. Of course, there's no in principle problem with thinking oneself genealogically lucky. I mean, no logical prohibition on it. As I said earlier, I know that I am in a lecture room right now and I know this on the basis of my reliable visual perception. But that's but it's only possible for me to know that I'm in a lecture room right now because I'm luckily not a brain in a vat. Right. So even my claims to ordinary empirical knowledge and your claims to ordinary empirical knowledge presuppose that you are, in a sense, genealogically lucky, that is lucky to not be in that part of possibility space where you are a brain in a vat. Or take my belief that the appearance of intelligent design in nature is just that, that is to say, just mere appearance. So I only know this because I was born well after Darwin and so was taught Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. William Paley, who died four years before Darwin would be born, was not so genealogically lucky, which is why Paley believed in intelligent design, falsely, but quite understandably. And I think that there feels not, at least to me, not anything odd in saying that I and others like me, presumably most of you, are genealogically lucky vis-a-vis the truth of intelligence vis-a-vis the truth <laughs> of natural selection, whereas Paley and others like him are genealogically unlucky. And yet it can feel, to at least some of us, at least some of the time, problematic to think of oneself as genealogically lucky in the cases of moral, theological or metaphysical belief. Perhaps this is because we can be confident that Paley would have rejected intelligent design had he been actually exposed to the full spread of evidence, most importantly, the, the explanatory power of Darwin's theory. By contrast, the Christian, for example, has little reason to think that he could persuade a Hindu or a Muslim of the belief that Jesus is the son of God by just offering him some more arguments or some more evidence. Similarly, I as a feminist have very little reason to think that I could persuade a highly intelligent, sincere Catholic theologian of the permissibility of homosexuality simply by offering him more evidence or more reasons. In these latter two cases, there appears to be a kind of deep symmetry between me and my uh, counterpart with a different genealogy. It seems like my counterpart and I can be equally apprised of all of the publicly available relevant evidence, equally sincere and diligent in our pursuit of the truth, and yet we can profoundly disagree. And this is because our different cultural and historical formations have endowed us with profoundly distinct ways of seeing and experiencing and interpreting the world. And in such cases, I can have no non-circular reason to think that I am the lucky one and my counterpart unlucky. So I can only say to myself, look, I believe that homosexuality is permissible, and it is permissible. Therefore, I must be the genealogically lucky one. So none of this is to say that one cannot justifiably, as a matter of epistemology, believe that one is genealogically lucky. I think I know, for example, that I am genealogically lucky when it comes to many of my fundamental feminist commitments. But this is only a comfort to those who in a moment of genealogical anxiety haven't already given up their beliefs. Because if you've already lost confidence in your beliefs in a moment of genealogical anxiety, you can't use those very beliefs in a premise, uh, in a premise, uh, in an argument Uh, to the effect that you are the genealogically lucky one. But this line of thought is also not very comforting to those who experience a certain ethical angst about thinking themselves genealogically lucky. It's one thing perhaps to counter the external world skeptic by insisting that my brain and the VAT counterpart is simply unlucky. And another to counter the critical genealogist by insisting that my counterpart with a different historical or cultural formation is similarly unlucky. There are no brains of vats. But it does appear that there are real people, equally intelligent, equally motivated by um, a concern for the truth, equally sincere, who, because of their different historical or cultural formations, disagree with us. To think of oneself or more generally one's particular community, sect, class, sex, culture, or historical moment as as genealogically lucky opens oneself up to accusations of chauvinism and immodesty. We know all too well the role played by the belief in genealogical luckiness in legitimating the domination of the putatively unlucky. Of course, it matters just who is taking themselves to be genealogically lucky. So I think it's troubling, obviously, when the evangelicals of so-called Western values use their putative genealogical luckiness as a justification to spread democracy for armed drone and tank but it seems a different matter to me altogether when women insist that their subjugation as women allows them to know something about the gendered structure of society that men are all too liable to miss. Or to take an example directly from Marx, should not working class people who see exploitation where the capitalist sees only free exchange and Bentham um, consider themselves in virtue of their relationship to the means of production, the beneficiary of good genealogical luck. If so, perhaps the problem is not the belief in genealogical luckiness per se, but the tendency of precisely the wrong kind of people to think themselves the lucky ones. Suppose, however, that you simply refuse uh, to insist on your genealogical luckiness, but you also refuse to give up uh, the, the commitments that are being impugned. What do you do then? Well, one way out advocated by many philosophers is to endorse an anti-realism about the relevant domain, right? So if the truths of some domain morality say, depend in a fundamental way on what we believe about them, right? Or depend on the very biological, historical, or cultural contingencies that form our moral beliefs, then there is no possibility of our beliefs, our moral beliefs, swinging wildly apart from the moral truths. Thus, by sacrificing a deep moral objectivity, we can avoid the discomfort of saying that we alone are the ones luckily endowed with moral knowledge. So though far less popular than in the case of morality, the basic strategy can also be taken up in metaphysics. Nelson Goodman and Hilary Putnam, as I already mentioned, both argue that what there is, well, a certain time slice of Hilary Putnam, um, both argued that what there is, that is the ontological truths, depend on our contingent conceptual schemes. So for Goodman, rather than there being a single mind independent world to which all of our representations answer, there are, are literally many multiple worlds, each dependent for its existence on a different conceptual scheme or what Goodman called a world version. And insofar as we are at home in multiple conflicting representational schema, Goodman said, in the world as described by uh, physics, say, and also the world as described by psychoanalysis, we live in multiple incommensurable worlds. So while Goodman's view doesn't mean that anything goes ontologically, it does mean that there is no point in debating who is genealogically lucky, the physicist or the psychoanalyst. Basically, they they both are. Everyone's lucky. So similarly, in the philosophy of religion, John Hick has argued that the main religious traditions all constitute epistemically legitimate ways of, he says, conceiving, experiencing and responding to what he calls the real, that is, the transcendental divine reality. Hick in effect is arguing that the claims of different religious religions are true relative to different historically and culturally contingent ways of experiencing the divine. And this in turn ensures that massive error about religious matters is not possible and critical genealogies of particular creedal beliefs have no bite. So broadly speaking, we have here two general ways of countering the critical genealogist. On one hand, we can maintain a rigorous objectivist understanding of the relevant truths and insist that it is our good genealogical fortune that puts us, but not our genealogical counterparts, in touch with those truths. And on the other hand, we can abandon a stringently objectivist understanding of the truths. And with it, the very idea that only one of us, me or my shadow self, gets to know the truth. A third and distinct strategy for countering the critical genealogist is to simply deny the problem altogether. This was the strategy advocated by Bernard Williams in his famous essay, Philosophy as a Humanistic Discipline. So as many of you will remember here, Williams criticizes Richard Rorty for indulging what Williams saw as a completely unnecessary anxiety, I would say genealogical anxiety, about the contingency of our moral and political worldviews and about the contingency of liberalism in particular. Rorty's own solution to genealogical anxiety was a kind of ironic oscillation between a steadfast first order commitment to liberal principles and a higher order recognition of their kind of radical contingency. Williams was unimpressed. The the supposed problem he wrote, and I quote, "'comes from the idea that a vindicatory history of our outlook is what we would really like to have. And the discovery that liberalism in particular, but the same is true of any outlook, has the kind of contingent history that it does have is a disappointment which leaves us with, at best, a second best. But why should we think that? Precisely because we are not unencumbered intelligences selecting in principle among all possible outlooks, we can accept that this outlook is ours just because of the history that has made it ours, or more precisely, has both made us and made the outlook as something that is ours. We are no less contingently formed than the outlook is, and the formation is significantly the same. Williams is surely right that we are not unencumbered intelligences. As philosophers are fond of saying, when we theorize, we must start from where we are. But to say that we must start from where we are is not to say that we must end up there. That is to convert an observation of our human finitude into a normative vindication of conservatism. Perhaps it was true for Williams that the upending of his moral and political outlook was a psychic impossibility. But for generations of radical political theorists and actors, such ideological upending has not only been possible, but necessary for emancipation. So this takes me to my final theme, which is the relationship between genealogy and radical politics. For some critical genealogists, the point of critical genealogy is not merely to call into question the epistemic standing of our representations, but moreover, to liberate us practically from their oppressive grip. For the Frankfurt School theorists, for example, ideology critique has a dual epistemic and practical character, emancipating us from the the grip of bourgeois ideology precisely by revealing to us uh, the epistemic flaws in that ideology. But for other thinkers, I want to suggest the practical power of critical genealogy does not appear to hinge on anything epistemological. Foucault is a paradigm case here, I think. With Marx and the Frankfurt School theorists in mind, Foucault distinguishes his genealogical method from ideology critique, by which he meant that he is not concerned with the epistemic standing of the discourses he analyzes. So what then is Foucault interested in? To put it no doubt too simply, Foucault is interested in what are representational systems, which practices they emerge from and sustain, how they are mobilized by power, and most importantly for for Foucault, what and who they bring into existence. In this, Foucault is, as in many things, of course, a follower of Nietzsche the author of the most famous critical genealogy, genealogy, the genealogy of morals. So here Nietzsche tells us that our modern system of morality, a system that valorizes kindness, sympathy, equality, and other values of the herd has its true origins, not in human goodness or an omnibenevolent divine, or even in Jesus, but in a complicated and ugly interplay of forces the resentment of the slave class against their masters, the paying of debts through the extraction of pain, and the will to power of the priestly caste, that's us. Many readers of Nietzsche see the genealogy as akin to the other critical genealogies I've been discussing here today. So on this reading, this popular reading Nietzsche, by showing us the ugly, true, all too human origins of our moral beliefs and concepts, calls into question their ability to limb the contours of moral reality. So this, for example, is how Peter Kale reads the genealogy as a, revelation, or as a revelation of the epistemic unreliability of our moral representations. And on a distinct but uh, related reading, one put forward by Raymond Goisse, also by Walter Kaufman, the point of Nietzsche's genealogy is to reveal that common beliefs about morality and specifically about Christianity are false. This genealogical revelation, Goys claims, will have the predictable psychological effect of undermining the Christian's belief in his own values, in turn destabilizing Christian forms of life. So for both Cale and Goys, like many other readers of Nietzsche, the force of the genealogy rests crucially on an epistemic revelation of irrationality, of hypocrisy, of unreliability and of falsity. So here, I want to offer a different way of reading Nietzsche's genealogy, according to which Nietzsche, like Foucault, is primarily interested, not in in whether our representations are in good epistemic standing, but what our representations do. And indeed, I want to offer a way of reading Nietzsche that sees him as exemplifying a distinctive strand of critical genealogical thinking, which our focus so far on the epistemological force of genealogies so, ha- so far has obscured. Nietzsche makes clear in the genealogy and elsewhere that modern morality has a certain effect has the effect of controlling, subduing, and neutering the instincts of what he calls higher men, right? Those individuals capable of the grandest reaches of human excellence. What is more, Nietzsche thinks that these effects aren't mere effects, right? They are, in fact, what explain the emergence and continued grip of bourgeois Christian morality. So in other words, it is the hidden function of morality to oppress higher men. A function that can only be uncovered, Nietzsche suggests, through a historical examination of how morality emerged, developed, and achieved its contemporary dominance. Meanwhile, to me at least, Nietzsche seems totally or relatively unbothered by the question of whether our moral representations are true or not. Nietzsche's repeated concern rather is what the, was with the value of Christian morality. Not that it's truth. the value by which Nietzsche appears to mean its conduciveness or not to human flourishing. Moreover, Nietzsche's concern for epistemic goods like truth and justification is decidedly ambivalent. Indeed, an obsession with epistemic error is what partly characterizes, Nietzsche says, those English psychologists from whom he distances himself right at the beginning of the genealogy. And finally, the focus on epistemic error as the upshot of genealogy makes much of what is striking about Nietzsche's own particular story, the emergence of morality out of a set of violent conflicts over the ownership and command of our normative concepts (coughs) drop out as philosophically irrelevant. So in his indifference to the epistemic merits of our representations and a concern instead for their ideological function, Nietzsche is not only emblematic of a strand of critical genealogical thinking that I think includes Foucault, but also I want to suggest a broad range of theorists of politics. Critics of liberalism, such as Carol Pateman, Iris Marion Young, Charles Mills, and Uday Mehta, Critics of Eurocentrism, such as Edward Said and Dipesh Chakrabarty. Feminists such as Simone de Beauvoir, Catherine McKinnon, and Judith Butler, and intellectual historians such as Quentin Skinner and Samuel Moyne. The crucial question for such critical genealogists is not, is this representation true, but what does this representation do? What practices and forms of life does it help sustain? What sort of person does it help construct? And what, whose power does it help entrench? So this second non-epistemic strand of critical genealogy also has, I think, a distinctive characteristic affect not anxiety, but hopefulness. So why might a critical genealogy be grounds for hope? One common answer is that a genealogy can show us that once that what was previously taken to be necessary is in fact contingent and therefore potentially changeable. So as Skinner puts it in Liberty Before Liberalism, a history of our representations can give us, quote, a broader sense of possibility. A sense that allows us to stand back from the intellectual commitments that we have inherited and ask ourselves in a new spirit of inquiry, what we should think of them. This is surely right, but it is tempting to think that having taken us so far, having revealed to us the ideological functions played by our contingent representations, the critical genealogist must be silent. For on the question of how then to go about intervening in our representations, what we should do with our dominant forms of representation, we might think that genealogy in its essentially backwards looking nature can have nothing to say. But this I want to suggest by way of conclusion need need not be so. So in another famous passage of the genealogy, Nietzsche narrates a conversation with someone who has taken up his invitation to, quote, have a little look down into the secret of how ideals are fabricated on this earth. His interlocutor uh, takes up the invitation and reports back from this dank cave. He says, I think people are telling lies. A sugary mildness clings to every sound. Lies are turning weakness into an accomplishment. An impotence, which doesn't retaliate, is being turned into goodness. Timid baseness is being turned into humility. Submission to people one hates is being turned into obedience. The inoffensiveness of the weakling, the very cowardice with which he is richly endowed, his standing by the door, all are given good names, such as patience, also known as the virtue. Not being able to take revenge is called not wanting to take revenge. But enough, enough, I can't bear it any longer. This workshop where ideals are fabricated, it seems to me just to stink of lies." Nietzsche's interlocutor is here, of course, witnessing a sort of pantomime of the slave revolt in morality. But he is also witnessing, as Skinner tells us, the workings of an ancient rhetorical strategy, what Quintilian calls para diastole, or rhetorical redescription. This is the strategy whereby Skinner explains, one quote replaces a given evaluative description with a rival term that serves to picture the action no less plausibly, but serves at the same time to place it in a contrasting moral light. What I want to suggest is that Nietzsche here satirizes rhetorical redescription in order to call our attention to the basic mechanism by which the slave revolt in morality was achieved, to remind us that it was not a matter of sheer contingency but a product of human artifice and human skill. The slave revolt involved a conscious attempt to change our representational practices, the replacement of the good-bad dichotomy with the evil-good dichotomy, and the recasting of virtues as vices and vices as virtues. Later in the same passage, Nietzsche describes, quote, the black magicians who can turn anything back into whiteness, milk, and innocence, as having performed the, quote, boldest, subtlest, most ingenious and mendacious stunt. The slave revolt in morality is a mendacious stunt for Nietzsche, but one that impresses him nonetheless. It is a piece of black magic that turns lies into truth. So it is in this sense that the genealogy, I think, is, as Nietzsche retrospectively said of it in Ecce Homo, a merely preparatory work for the revaluation of values. A full revaluation will not merely diagnose the ideological function of our values, thereby prompting the higher men to rebel against them, but will moreover revalue them, transforming them anew. For it is one thing to reveal that morality oppresses the higher men For the benefit of the weak, and another still to make the higher men good once more. Nietzsche's genealogy by revealing the means by which modern morality came into being prepares the ground, he says, for the reverse experiment and redemption of this reality that should, he says, be possible in principle for a creative spirit of sufficient strength. So reading the genealogy this way is to read it as a guide to what I want to call borrowing a term from Goodman, world making. The transformation of the world through a transformation of our representational practices. A critical genealogy is a guide to world making when it not only explains our representations in terms of the ideological function they serve, but also shows us the role that agents have played in the emergence and continued dominance of those representations. For then we as agents might hope to be able to by a similar mechanism, but hopefully to a very different end, make our representations and thus the world anew. In a crucial passage of the genealogy, Nietzsche describes how it is that representations come to exercise their functional roles in the world. He writes, every purpose and use is just a sign that the will to power has achieved mastery over something less powerful and is impressed upon its own idea of a use function. And the whole history of a thing, an organ, a tradition, can to this extent be a continuous chain of signs, continually revealing new interpretations and adaptations. This runs counter to just that prevailing instinct and fashion, which would much rather come to terms with absolute randomness than the theory that a power will is acted out in all that happens. Nietzsche's genealogy is not meant to reveal absolute randomness or sheer contingency. Instead, it's meant to reveal just how deeply the way the world is depends on how we represent it. And moreover, that how we represent it is a matter of who won, of of which of the various interpretations and adaptations successfully vied for dominance. In revealing this, Nietzsche's genealogy is a reminder, at least for those of us who are sufficiently strong and creative of our own world-making power. But it's also a reminder of the limits of that power. For ch- simply changing one's own local representations is insufficient to, su- to world-make. One's repose redescription must vie for uptake against the dominant mode of representation. What is more for a representational intervention to be successful, it must be taken up by the very people whose interests will be undermined if it does in fact take hold. The slave revolt in morality required not only that slaves began to believe themselves to be good, but that masters began to see themselves as evil. Similar things could be said of the gay rights campaign to make gay marriage and of the feminist campaign to make marital rape conceptual possibilities. Such representational interventions, as all the most effective political actors know, require not only the gifts of sound judgment and persuasive style, but also the gift of good luck. For his own part, Nietzsche often seemed to rail against the way in which his world-making powers were hostage to the uptake of others. He complained very often of not being understood, and he also of selling so few books. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra begins with his title character stepping out of a cave and asking the sun whether, what the sun would be if not uh, for those on whom the sun shines. After attempting and failing to take his message to the world, Zarathustra returns and retreats to his cave at the end of the book. It's a poignant image, I think, of a failed world maker. It also speaks to the pragmatic and political problems with Nietzsche's profoundly individualistic vision of world making. For an alternative vision, we should turn, I want to suggest, to those whom Nietzsche would presumably despise, the participants of the various slave revolts still underway. Male power creates the reality of the world, writes Catherine McKinnon and it is the task of feminism to expose that power as specifically male for the first time. She goes on. For example, men say all women are whores. Feminism observes that men have the power to make prostitution women's definitive condition. Men say women desire to be degraded. Feminism sees female masochism as the ultimate success of male supremacy and puzzles over its failures. Thus, feminism begins for MacKinnon with the revelation that our sexual reality, and of course for MacKinnon that means our entire social and political reality, as having its origin in male power. Male power is not merely the power to dictate the dominant mode of representing the world, but also, on MacKinnon's view, the power to construct the world. Thus, male power, she says, makes women, as it were, and so makes true who women are. The task for feminists is to collectively re describe their condition in a way that both diagnoses, diagnoses it and transforms it. This, of course, is the essence of consciousness raising. In a paradiastolic gesture more than worthy of Nietzsche, McKinnon tells us that, quote, feminism claims the voice of women's silence, the sexuality, the sexuality of women's eroticized desexualization, the fullness of lack. The centrality of women's marginality and exclusion, the public nature of privacy, the presence of women's absence. This approach is neither materialist nor idealist, it is feminist. Feminism for McKinnon, reinterprets the male created world for itself in a way that is at once true to reality, resisting an idealistic flight from it, and also transformative of it, resisting a materialist cap- capitulation to it. Thus McKinnon writes, the struggle for consciousness is the struggle for world. This dual demand to resist both idealism and materialism, futility and complacency structures, I want to suggest all endeavors of world making. Indeed it in a broad sense structures all of our creative endeavors. A creative act after all is a proposed interpretation of an artistic tradition. If it hews too closely to that received tradition, it will be derivative, a complacent acceptance of what has come before it. If however, it departs too radically from what preceded it, it will simply be unintelligible, a futile attempt to make sense. Likewise with our attempts at world making, individual or communal. Our representational interventions must feel at once as if they are getting the world right and also picture it anew. I do not mean this as an argument for Fabianism in either art or politics, far from it. At its best, world-making is a radical endeavor, bringing into existence worlds we scarcely thought possible. But I do mean it as a diagnosis of the difficulty of world-making. In that, it is also one answer to why history matters for politics. Thank you.